open your Bibles with me to Revelation. Today, like Gary said, is International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, where we join hundreds of other churches scattered throughout the world to pray for those who are experiencing persecution, especially in those areas where the persecution is more than just verbal ridicule, but imprisonment, torture, and death. So to that end, we'll be looking at Revelation chapter 2 to Jesus' letter to the church in Smyrna. You can find that at the bottom of page 1028 of the Pew Bibles, if you are without a copy of God's Word. Once you've found your place, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's sacred and holy Word. Hear the Word of the Lord. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, what sobering words these are for us. They keep us from domesticating the way of the cross and show it to be what it really is, a road to suffering and death for the sake of Jesus' name. These words are discomforting to us because they call us to take up our cross as well. This is what the Spirit still says to the churches, and die that others may have life. They bring us face to face with some of our greatest fears in being Jesus' disciples like imprisonment and death. But I pray that every one of those fears will will, will be overcome with the glory of Christ and the comforts that He supplies and the promises that He makes and the strength He provides and the rewards He obtains for us. I pray that You would come and enable us to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches in these words and grant to Your servants in this room to continue to speak the word with all boldness, even if it means death. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, before getting to our passage this morning in Revelation 2, I just want to bring to your attention again God's ultimate aim to have the gospel of the kingdom preached as a testimony to all nations, to all peoples, in all the inhabited earth, Matthew 24, 14. God's aim in creating the world, in sustaining its existence while the world itself is rebellious against Him, in sending His Son Jesus to take away sins and raising Jesus from the dead that we might receive the Holy Spirit, in delaying His final judgment on creation, God's aim in all of this is to spread 
the good news of his kingdom in all the inhabited earth as a testimony to all peoples. There are people among all the nations and peoples of the world whom he purchased with the blood of his son and his aim is to see that they believe upon him for eternal life through hearing the good news of the kingdom proclaimed. Revelation 5.9 Worthy are you, O Lamb, O Christ, to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you did ransom for God men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and a priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Ransomed people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation have been bought with the blood of Jesus and God will see that every one of his blood-bought people hears the good news of the kingdom in order to be saved, in order to reign with him on the last day. And you are the means by which the good news goes out. Go therefore and make disciples of all Nations, Repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in Jesus' name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. As the Father sent Jesus into the world, Jesus says, even so I am sending you. You are the means through which the world is to hear the gospel of the kingdom. You are His chosen instruments whom He fills and empowers with His Spirit to penetrate darkness among the Bashkali people of Pakistan, to translate the Bible among the Awir peoples of Kenya, to overcome language barriers that churches may be planted among the southern Dong of China, to liberate the Lao Fuan of Laos from their rampant idolatry, When you met Jesus in all his glorious worth and said, My Savior and my Lord, you signed up to give the rest of your life over to seeing saints strengthened, churches planted, and disciples made among all peoples of the world. You may be called to stay in a particular place like Fort Worth to strengthen local ministries, But frontier missions to the unreached must be so much a part of our heartbeat that all the local ministries we do here will contribute to that end. To that glorious end of seeing the gospel of the kingdom spread among all peoples of the world so that the end will come. I pray you'll come and hear more about that on Wednesday at our Hold the Rope Fellowship. But here's the thing. Of the estimated 3,167 unreached and unengaged peoples of the world that I mentioned last week, most of them live in an area known as the 1040 window. An area that uh, is, consists of North Africa primarily, the Middle East, and Asia. And an area that is dense with Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists the overwhelming majority of which have no valid opportunity to hear the gospel, and which is poverty-stricken and saturated with satanic strongholds and oppressive governments and hostile religious commitments. They don't want you to come and make disciples 
of their people. You're not invited to these places, but that means we must go to them in order to make disciples of all peoples. And that means suffering and martyrdom is included in completing the mission Jesus gave us to complete. Indeed, suffering and martyrdom of the suffering and martyrdom of God's saints is even part of God's strategy, part of God's purpose in taking the gospel of the kingdom to these people. What does Jesus tell his disciples in Matthew 10? Verse 16 to 18. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. We know what happens to sheep in the midst of wolves. I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. Why? What's the divine purpose? To bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Persecution rises for this purpose of spreading the gospel among hostile governors and kings and the Gentiles. It's part of God's plan. Romans 8, verses 35 to 36. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword... As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We, church, are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And then he goes on to say, no, none of those things will separate us from the love of Christ. And get this, he says, in all these things. We overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Not apart from them. In them. In the tribulation. In the distress. In the persecution. In the famine. In the nakedness. In the danger. In the sword. We overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. 1 Peter 2.21 But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure... This is a gracious thing in the sight of God, for to this you have been called. This is our calling. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. That is, in his steps of sacrificial love to see others have life. Revelation 6, verses 9 to 11, covered last year on this same day. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. We're talking martyrs here under the altar in heaven. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. And get this, until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Who were to be killed as they themselves had been. God's global purpose 
in spreading the glorious news of his kingdom includes the suffering and the martyrdom of his people. There's a number of martyrs that must be filled up still. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, you are called to follow in the steps of Christ's sufferings, to share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, to carry in your body the death of Jesus every day, to fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Therefore, we all need to be prepared for suffering and persecution when it comes in the task of global missions. Whether it happens to us when we stay here or when we go abroad, we need to prepare ourselves for persecution. Some of the people groups I listed off a minute ago are here in the Metroplex. Unreached, nobody's engaging with the gospel. Dusty and Andy and others are doing what they can to research how we might go to them. So whether it happens to us when we stay in Fort Worth or when we go abroad, we need to prepare ourselves for persecution. We need to remember Jesus' words. If you, were of the, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. John 15, verses 19 to 20. So what's going to keep you holding on to Jesus when persecution comes? When you're strung up by your feet night after night in a cold prison cell? What's going to keep you holding on to Jesus when persecution comes and living to complete the great commission of making disciples of all nations, when your children are beaten in front of you in order to get you to deny Jesus? What's going to keep you holding on to Jesus when your church meetings are ravaged week in and week out? Or when people, the people you evangelize, the people you do baptize yourself, the people you discipled are then disowned by their Muslim family members? Where will we all find strength? Our text from Revelation 2 gives us at least four comforts to consider when we face persecution. Four comforts in Christ that help us to endure suffering in the advance of the gospel among all peoples. Number one, Christ is present in our suffering. Christ is present in our suffering. We see this in a couple of ways. In verse 9, Jesus says... I know your tribulation and your poverty and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Jesus says, I know your tribulation. He is not far away from us when we suffer. His presence at the right hand of God in heaven does not mean he is disconnected from all that is going on in our lives. He knows exactly what we're going through. Then in chapter 1, verse 13, Jesus is the one John hears a voice, the voice of many waters. He turns around, he sees Jesus. And what is Jesus doing? He is standing, it says in verse 13. He is standing in the midst of the lampstands. What are the lampstands? The churches. He's standing in the midst of the churches. And when Jesus addresses his letter to the church in Ephesus chapter 2, verse 1, he identifies himself as the one who holds the seven stars in his 
right hand. That's the angels over the churches. And who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Again, that's the churches. He's walking in the midst of the churches. Now, Jesus' presence among the churches, his intimate knowledge of the saints within the churches, normally in these letters, serves as a sobering reminder to turn away from sin. But here, and in the letter written to the church in Philadelphia, his intimate presence and knowledge serves as a great comfort to those who are suffering and facing persecution. He upholds Redeemer Church and all the heavenly hosts overseeing our well-being right now. He holds them in his unshakable right hand. Even if the persecution were to take some brothers and sisters from us, Christ remains present with us. He walks in our midst always, never to leave our side when the suffering comes. What does he promise us in Matthew 28, verse 20, when he gives us the great commission to make disciples of all nations? He knows. He knows it's going to be hard stuff to make disciples of all nations. What does he say? Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus writes to his suffering church in Smyrna. He writes these kinds of things. I know your tribulation to comfort them with the words, with these words. In other words, he's saying, I'm not far away from your tribulation. I'm deeply acquainted with your tribulation and suffering. What they do to you, they also did to me. Even though the government officials may believe the satanic lies that some of the hostile Jewish people are feeding them, I know what it truly is. It's slander. It's not true of you. I know the truth because I've been with you, church, and that's all that matters. When persecution comes for us, whatever slight or severe form it takes, we must remember that Christ is intimately acquainted with it because he is present with us. One way we're often vulnerable, and this is especially true for those of us more familiar with the comforts and securities and safety of American living, one way we're vulnerable is that when suffering arises, we begin thinking Christ is far away. Christ is with us as long as things are peaceful. When suffering arises, Christ is far away. We can have the tendency to think that as long as we're physically comfortable, Jesus is with us and behind us. And as soon as suffering comes, we become very vulnerable to loneliness and isolation, and that leads to greater depression and fear and anxiety. And that's not hard to imagine. In some cases, when you're disowned by family members for following Jesus and stuffed in a prison cell alone without the comforting words of your wife before bedtime, without hearing the laughter of your children in the morning, cut off from fellowship with faithful brothers and sisters and tempted by the devil throughout them all. But Jesus indicates that he is with us. He is with us when suffering rises. He knows what persecutions we are facing and there in his presence is where we must find our ultimate comfort. When I spoke of John Patton last week, do you remember what he said as the cannibals are are marching, tramp, tramping around his house, whispering how they're going to get in, kill him. What does he say? What does John Patton, where does John Patton find his safety and comfort in the midst of that? He said this, Our safety lay in our appeal 
to that blessed Lord who had placed us there and to whom all power had been given in heaven and earth. He that was with us was more precious than all that could be against us. Or how does Paul say it when he experienced opposition from Alexander the coppersmith? Second Timothy, what does he say? He experiences his opposition. The Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. The Lord stood by me, strengthened me. Christ is present in all our suffering. Number two, Christ is sovereign over our suffering. Christ is sovereign over our suffering. Notice that Jesus identifies himself in verse 8 as the first and the last. That title is one that belongs to God alone in the Old Testament. Isaiah 41, verses 2 to 4. Who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done all this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last. I am he. Or Isaiah 44, verses 6 to 7. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first, and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. You don't know, in other words, what will come and what will happen. That belongs to me. I'm the first and the last. By identifying himself as the first and the last, Jesus reassures his suffering people that he is the creator of all and the sovereign over all history. His eternal existence as Son of God preceded all creation, and he will bring all things in creation to their appointed ends. He was alive before the universe existed, and he will be alive after our earthly existence as we know it. He determined the past and controls the future. No suffering or persecution happens outside of Jesus' sovereign plan and ordination. Jesus is not less in control of the course of this universe when his saints die than when he keeps them alive. Christ is sovereign over everything in your life, including his control over whatever instigates evil against you. If he does not have absolute sovereign control over your persecutors, he has no control at all, and he is not God. But Jesus tells us otherwise. The Bible tells us otherwise. Jesus comforts his people with the words, I am the first and the last. He is in total control of all suffering in our lives. From the moment of our conception to the day he takes us home, even if he takes us home through a concentration camp in North Korea who doesn't like what you keep saying about Jesus. The sufferings of the church in Smyrna or in any other place are not out of God's control. He knows precisely what's about to happen. He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. I know what's going on here. 
I know what's coming from you. I'm in control of every bit of it. The situation is in my hands. The devil does not make one move apart from my permission. Don't fear those men who lock you up in prison, Smyrna. They are not in control of your destiny. I am. I'm prepared for the outcome of all this. God even limits what the devil is allowed to do to them. Did you, did you see that? It is not all the saints in Smyrna who are going to be thrown into prison. Only some of them. They will not have tribulation forever, but only for a limited time, for ten days, the text says. The devil isn't permitted just to do what he wants, nor are the other evil men who submit themselves to the devil's influence. They can only do what God permits them and ordains them to do. Moreover, they can only kill their bodies. You throw them in prison, the men can only kill their bodies, they cannot touch their soul. Verse 11 says that even though they may die as a result of this imprisonment, they will ultimately not be hurt by the second death, which is the death in the lake of fire, according to chapter 20, verse 14. This is why Jesus tells his disciples, do not fear. Do not fear him who can cast, who can only kill the body. Fear him who can both, after destroying the body, cast both body and soul into hell. Matthew, that's found in the Gospels. So all the evil forces of this world are limited in power and control by the sovereign God of the universe who brings all his purposes to pass through Christ. Isn't the sovereignty of God where Jesus himself gained his strength when he himself endured persecution and martyrdom? When he was threatened and mocked and flogged before being crucified. Remember what what he says to Pilate? Pilate asks Jesus, do you not know what I... This is what Pilate's saying, flapping his jaws here. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and, and authority to crucify you? What does Jesus say to him? You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. My heavenly daddy controls you. You ain't got nothing on me, Pilate. My father gives you authority to crucify me. I can only die when God decides to take me, even if it's at your hands. The same sovereignty of God also strengthened the disciples in the book of Acts, chapter 4. Remember their prayer? Acts chapter 4, verses 27 to 29. Truly in this city... They're praying to God this. Truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. Now how do they gain strength from that? How does that relate to their discipleship in advancing the gospel of the kingdom among hostile people like this? And now, Lord, so based on your sovereignty and Jesus' suffering... Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. There is great comfort and courage to be had when Christ is sovereign over our suffering and over our enemies. That doesn't mean the prison cell will be comfortable or that the soldier's boots won't hurt or that gut-riching pain won't come when our kids are taken away. 
but it will mean that we can remain steadfast in faith, knowing that nothing will befall us apart from the good and wise will of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who has bought us. It should give us great hope in the midst of persecution that our wise Heavenly Father has built design and purpose into the suffering that we are experiencing. That He's always doing a thousand things more and that are a thousand times bigger than anything we can think or imagine. You see, the devil says, in order to be tested here, throw you into prison that you may be tested. The devil would like to to use the suffering as temptation to destroy us. That's what the devil would like to use it for. But faith in God's sovereign care in suffering helps us see that suffering is actually a test to refine us, not, not a temptation to destroy us. Isn't that what James 1 tells us? That the testing of our faith through through the various trial the testing of our faith through various trials produces steadfastness and steadfastness is to have its full effect in us that we may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing suffering is a test to refine us that's one purpose for persecution the suffering of God's saints serves all kinds of purposes when you read the new testament in Matthew 10 We looked at it earlier. Persecution serves to spread the gospel before some of the most significant individuals in society. Rulers and kings, governors. In Philippians chapter 1 verse 14, Paul's imprisonment emboldens the Philippian church, giving many of the saints courage to speak the word of God without fear. Who would have thought that imprisonment brings encouragement to the saints back home to speak the word of God Without fear. In Romans 8, verses 37 to 39, we see that tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and the sword all give opportunities to display the all-conquering love of Christ. That remains unyielding toward you in the face of death. I don't think we often read Romans 8 in light of persecution and mission to the world. Distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, and danger are actually opportunities for us in our bodies to display before a watching world that hates us the all-conquering love of Christ that remains unyielding towards us in the face of death. Or what, that's another purpose for persecution. Or what happens in chapter 16 of the book of Acts when Paul and Silas are beaten with rods and then thrown into prison with the evil rulers then ordering the jailer, this jailer over here, ordering him to keep them safe. Make sure they don't get out. What happens? The jailer gets saved. God's got a plan in our suffering. I want this jailer saved. I'm going to have these guards pick this jailer on this day. I'm going to have Paul and Silas cast this spirit out of this woman on this day. At this time, she's going to, he's going to get fed up with her. I'm going to put them in prison on this day, this time, so this man is saved. <laughs> so God even uses suffering to bring the gospel to others. 
Isn't that also what happened shortly after the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 8? This church was scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria because of the persecution. What's it say? It says those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Just explodes the gospel out, advancing to the nations by by stoning Stephen. Who knows what God's planning on unleashing through the suffering of those saints in Smyrna? Who knows how more convicting and powerful the message will be to the peoples in their region when their proclamation of the gospel is then sprinkled with their blood? They are not to fear what they are about to endure, but to find comfort in the sovereign rule of God in Christ over their trials. And we must do the same. If we are to be more than conquerors through Him who loved us, our persecution and trials must be viewed in light of Christ's sovereign purpose to work all things for our good and His glory. Number three, Christ makes provision for our suffering. Christ makes provision for our suffering. Some of you may get the fact that He's, he's with us in our suffering. You know, He's with us, but it still hurts. You get get his with us in our suffering. Christ is sovereign over your suffering. But fear still lingers somewhat because you don't know if you can handle the suffering. Well, let let it also be a comfort to you that whatever persecution Christ calls you to endure, he also provides what's necessary to endure it. You see, before Christ gives the command to this Smyrnan Smyrnian church. Before he gives the command to them, be faithful unto death. How does he identify himself in verse 8? The one who died and came to life. Before Christ commands us to be faithful unto death in verse 10, he reminds us that he himself was faithful unto death in verse 8. He tells John in chapter 1, verse 18, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Jesus himself endured persecution unto death and came out victorious from the grave. But here's what's so significant about his suffering unto death. And what makes his sufferings unto death like ours in some respects, but radically different in others. His death not only served as an example we follow, like 1 Peter 2 says but also as the atonement for our sins, which ensures our eternal life forever. Look at chapter 1, verse 5. Chapter 1, verse 5 says this. From Jesus, the faithful witness or faithful martyr, the firstborn of the dead and ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and made us a kingdom. So He is the faithful martyr. He is unlike any other martyr in that His sufferings and death freed us from our sins. In Revelation 5, Jesus is pictured as a standing lamb who was once slaughtered on behalf of His people. All of heaven sings of His work on the cross where He bought us from our slavery to sin and granted us the freedom of eternal life in His kingdom. We heard it earlier, worthy are you. Worthy are you. For by your blood you did ransom for God men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God. 
by dying the death we, served, we deserved for our sins, by enduring the penalty of God's wrath and his sufferings, by taking away our sins with his blood, Jesus ensures that not a single disciple of his will ever die in vain. Being faithful unto death for any religion or cause is devastating and torture if you're still enslaved to your sins. I'm going to say that again. Being faithful unto death for any religion or cause is devastating and torture if you're still enslaved to your sins. Eternal punishment and fire is all you'll get, which is what it means to be hurt by the second death at the end of verse 11. Death and Hades will one day give up the dead who were in them. Those people will be judged according to what they had done and then thrown into the lake of fire. The second death is the lake of fire. Revelation 20 verse 14. So being faithful unto death for any religion or cause is devastating and torture if you're still enslaved to your sins. You're not, in other words, if you're not dying for Christ. That is not so when Christ is your Lord. When, when you trust in Christ, when you take up your cross to follow Jesus on the Calvary Road, you are freed from all your sins. Freed. So that the sting of death has been removed, as we saw last week from 1 Corinthians 15. And all that awaits you is the crown of life. Being faithful unto death is not devastating. It's not torture when Christ is your Lord and has removed your sins and promises you eternal life with Him forever. Moreover, Christ's resurrection life guarantees and seals our future hope in His glorious kingdom. So even though our present circumstances could, could become just as distressing as they were for the church in Smyrna with tribulation and distress and poverty and imprisonment and death and slander, Christ ensures our future victory by rising from the dead. He'll be there to give us the crown of life when we endure. Jesus says to you, be faithful unto death because he's already defeated death for you and desires to crown you with eternal life when the sword brings you home to glory. Everything we need to endure persecution in completing the Great Commission, Jesus has already provided us through his cross and resurrection. Number four, Christ must be precious before our suffering. Christ must be precious to us before our suffering. If we are to endure persecution, Jesus Christ must be our treasure before we are persecuted. Look again at verse 9. Jesus says here, I know your tribulation and your poverty, the little parentheses, but you are rich. But you are rich. Now don't mistake them for the church in Laodicea. Jesus says that the church in Laodicea is rich as well, but they're not rich with Christ. They're rich with the world. That's the problem in Laodicea. They're rich with the world, and they need nothing of Christ. The church in Smyrna, on the other hand, has invested well in the spiritual riches that are in Christ, that are lasting. Like Smyrna, we must see that our greatest need is not more security in this world, but eternal security in Christ Part of being free from sin is that Jesus liberates us from the temporary pleasures of this world that would otherwise keep us from laying down our lives 
And in their place, he provides, with, provides us with eternal pleasures that always satisfy and are never threatened by death. Or moth, or rust, or robbers. When we are rich in the pleasures and comforts that Jesus provides, in the treasures of Jesus' kingdom, only then will we be ready to suffer. Only then will, it, will we be able to be like those in, in Hebrews chapter 10, verses, verse 34, where it says that they had compassion on those in prison and they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property since they knew they had a better possession and an abiding one. That's how you joyfully accept the plundering of your property. You know that you have a better possession and abiding one in Christ. Take it, from, take it from the words of a pastor who endured 14 years of imprisonment and torture in communist Romania, Romania Richard Wormbrand. Worm, Wormbrand once wrote these words. What shall we do about these tortures? Will we be able to bear them? If I do not bear them, I put in prison another 50 or 60 men whom I know because that is what the communists wish from me, to betray those around me. And here comes the great need for the role of preparation for suffering which must start now. It is too difficult to prepare yourself for suffering when the communists have already put you in prison. He tells a story. I remember my last confirmation class before I left for Romania. I took a group of 10 to 15 boys. Get this, Sunday school teachers. I took a group of 10 to 15 boys and girls on a Sunday morning, not to a church, but to the zoo. Before the cage of lions, I told them, your, father, your forefathers in the faith were thrown before such wild beasts for their faith. Know that you also will have to suffer. You will not be thrown before lions, but you will have to do with men who would be much worse than lions. Decide here and now if you wish to pledge allegiance to Christ. They had tears in their eyes when they said yes. Then he says, We have to make the preparation now before we are imprisoned. In prison you lose everything. You are undressed and given a prisoner's suit no more nice furniture, nice carpets, or nice curtains. You do not have a wife anymore, and you do not have your children. You do not have your library, and you never see a flower. Nothing of what makes life pleasant in this world remains. Then listen to this. Nobody resists who has not renounced the pleasures of life beforehand. So how rich are you in Christ this morning? How, how much is He your treasure and your ultimate prize? How much do you long for His kingdom to come? Have you readied yourself to lay it all down for the spread of the gospel among all peoples? Because there's no other way. There's no other way to follow Jesus in this world. Whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospels will save it. Mark 8.35 Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, verse 33 How do you prepare well 
for suffering, persecution, and imprisonment? How do you overcome fears of separation, torture, and death for the sake of the gospel spreading among all peoples? By making yourself so rich in Christ that you have everything to give for the sake of people's knowing him. Even your own life should the Lord so ordain. And that's not an unpleasant thing, is it? To make yourself rich in the Lord Jesus. In a bit, we're going to pray again in clusters like we did last week. But this week, our prayers will be specifically for those who are experiencing persecution. I think you have a prayer guide, a green insert there. Hebrews 13.3 says to remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. So we're going to remember them today corporately and when we pray, I would ask that you not only consider uh, whether these four comforts in Christ are present in your own life, um, but also to pray that these comforts in Christ would be near and dear to the others who are suffering even now as, we, as we're gathering. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I pray that you would, in fact, make us rich in the Lord Jesus Christ and that we would not find our treasure to be in this world but in him alone. And as you make us rich, I pray that you would also make us bold to stand for his name in all that we do and in all that we proclaim. Amen.